Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here just for a quick intro. Earlier this week, Tom did a guest appearance on Mike Howe's The Dirt Podcast. Is that the right name, Tom? That's correct. So similar to what we did a few weeks ago with Tommy Butts and the Weeds Are Wild podcast, this is going to be a crossover episode. It dropped on Mike's, I guess, today. Today is third Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. And so I think it's out on Mike's podcast, so we're going to drop it here too. So, Tom, what y'all talk about? We talked a little bit about how plant nutrition as well as soil nutrition or soil nutrients can impact or influence plant diseases. And we spoke more specifically about cotton and cotton-related issues with the whole potassium-associated foliar deficiency and some of those things. And then, you know, proper proper plant tissue sampled to be submitted to the diagnostic laboratories and those types of things. So the audio you're going to hear from here on out is from Mike's podcast. Again, that's The Dirt with Mike Howe. Mike works for Nutrients. We hope you enjoy it. The Dirt with me, Mike Howell, an economics podcast where I present the down and dirty agronomic science to help grow crops and bottom lines. Inspired by economics.com, farming's go-to informational resource, I'm here to break down the latest crop nutrition research, news, and issues, helping farmers make better business decisions through actionable insights. Let's dig in. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Dirt. We've got a special guest with us today, Dr. Tom Allen. Tom is with Mississippi State University and serves as a plant pathologist there. He is also the co-host of the weekly podcast, The Crop Doctors. Now, if you haven't listened to The Crop Doctors before, I highly encourage everyone to tune in. It's a weekly podcast talking about anything related to crop production. They have weed scientists, entomologists, fertility specialists, economists, and much, much more presented on this program. Tom, great to have you with us. How are you doing this morning? Mike, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Tom, if you will, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, where you're located, how long you've been with Mississippi State. Sure. I am at the Delta Research and Extension Center, which is nearest Stoneville, Mississippi. That is the main flagship experiment station within the Mississippi State system. I am an extension, predominantly extension, 80% extension, 20% research plant pathologist, and I cover pretty much all of the row crops in the state of Mississippi, with the exception of sweet potatoes. So I do corn, cotton, grain, sorghum, soybeans, rice, wheat, and on the rare occasion, I deal with some peanut issues as well. Um, and if I didn't say, I've, I've been here 15 years, which some days kind of surprises me that I've been here that long. It, it has been quite a while, Tom. And I guess we both started about the same time with Mississippi State, more or less. Uh, I was down in the south part of the state working as an area agronomist and had peanut responsibility statewide. And I guess we first bumped past when the sky was falling in the disease world with soybean rust. You had us all out looking everywhere in the world, uh, kudzu patches and tromping all over rattlesnakes and everything else looking for soybean rust. And we still do a a good bit of that. The only difference is, is back in those days, we used to actually have sentinel plots that were dedicated for looking for soybean rust. And heck, I had three part-time 
retire rehires that did that. Andy Milling, Malcolm Broon, Billy Moore used to roam the state for me looking at things. Uh, and now it's it's me <laughs> with with no sentinel plots. And at least I know a lot of the main kudzu patches throughout the state to go check. And there are some places that I frequent throughout South Mississippi, you know, starting about this time of the year. In the next two weeks, I'll probably start looking at some things just to see where we're at. Tom, just before we get kicked off good here, uh, this is July the 5th. Uh, we're recording this. We're coming off of the holidays. I know you enjoyed your holiday yesterday. Uh, anything special going on yesterday? No, we kind of hung out around the house. Um, and then I actually came to Stoneville to check on things and see how wet it was after we had a bunch of rain end of last week and then over the weekend just to see how dry we were in some places and start lining some things out for some more corn spraying and get some soybean plots started this week. It's definitely that time of year. You know, we had we had all seven of the kids at the house this weekend, and somehow word got out that Dad had the, the grill going and the swimming pool was open. So we ended up with quite a crowd at the house yesterday, and uh, uh, nothing wrong with that. At least we knew where everybody was at, and everybody was having a good time. So We spent some good time with some friends throughout the weekend, you know, just kind of hanging out and shooting off some fireworks here and there. So it was, I mean, it was a good prolonged weekend for sure. And I certainly got some relaxing in because, you know, now, now really starts the, the hardcore time of the year. That's, that's not for the meek and timid moving forward. That's right. Uh, your, your world is just getting cranked up and the, the temperatures outside are getting cranked up a lot of humidity down here in this part of the world. And that's what a lot of these diseases need to get going. Let's get into the dirt and start talking about this relationship between soil fertility and plant diseases. You know, when I was in school and taking plant pathology classes and learning all about this, we had the disease triangle, and I think that's changed to a disease pyramid now. But uh, the factors that are involved in that are, if I remember right, you've got to have a susceptible host, you've got to have the right environment, you've got to have time, and you've got to have a pathogen to get diseases in crops. And I think today what we're going to focus mostly on is that susceptible host. And one thing that we saw a lot down in South Mississippi when I was working in a row crop and you were coming around and we never could figure out was all this disease that was showing up in cotton. And it seemed like it started the first rain we got after the 4th of July. And this year, that would be today. We've, we've already got our rain for today, and it's the day after the 4th. So I'm expecting to start seeing some of these foliar diseases show up in cotton. And, uh, you know, that disease had a chance to get pretty bad back then. And we would actually defoliate cotton a month too early because of that disease. It just knocked all the leaves off of the crop. So we did a lot of soil sampling. We did a lot of tissue sampling back then, and it always came back that we had a potassium deficiency. But, uh, you know, we were pouring the potash to it and still couldn't get the levels up where we needed. So, Tom, what's been going on with that? Uh, we still seeing those diseases show up, and what can we do about that? We do, Mike. You pointed out that we kind of get to that point in the season. You start setting some pretty heavy fruit loads on a lot of these early maturing cotton varieties. And with that in mind, it's problematic talking about some of those foliar disease issues because a lot of cotton farmers will get upset about, you know, well, I, I did plenty of fertility. I put out plenty of potassium on the soil. And a lot of that ends up being related to how that plant accumulates and assimilates those nutrients. And when you start shifting all of your nutritional sources from leaves and moving that to bulb production, those leaves become ultra susceptible to what I just like to consider some pretty garbage fungal organisms that need that foliar potassium deficiency that's in the cotton leaves 
to really get that disease initiated. And those are pretty broad group of organisms that depending upon how the fungal taxonomy has changed over time. And as a plant pathologist, that's one of the hardest things to really look into is how taxonomy has changed. There used to be a genus called Helminthosporium, and they split that into several other genera over time. But Helminthosporium, Stemphilium, probably some Cercospora, and a few other just general basic organisms can jump on cotton foliage and end up leading to that premature defoliation. And then you'll develop some of those really interesting reddish brown to maroon to just a reddish tint across some of those fields whereby you see some of that foliar nutritional deficiencies. And then if you do go as far as sending in some foliage to have the nutrient lab test at with a comparable soil sample to look at the same thing, usually you end up with, and not in every case, but in most cases, you have plenty of potassium present in the soil and it's how that plant uptakes that nutrient and uses it then throughout the season, whereby you end up with a deficiency in the actual foliage or the leaf tissue itself. So Tom, back then, one of the working hypotheses was that, that we were putting so much fruit on at one time that the plant just physically could not take up enough potassium uh, at any given time to, to meet the needs of the plant. I mean, those roots are only so big, we can only force so much through it at one time. Is that still what we're thinking? Just physically can't get enough in? In those situations where we see it, I think that's definitely the main situation that occurs. And then, you know, lots of people try to point out, well, we should be putting out a fungicide to manage those or a fungicide would benefit us. And I think a lot of plant pathologists have done some evaluations in some of their efficacy trials and point out that they still run across a lot of those disease organisms, or at least some of the symptom expression that they'll see associated with that, regardless of which fungicide product they put out there. So to me, really, unless you can fix how that nutrient flow moves through that plant, or whether you can uptake just a little bit more and reduce the likelihood of ending up with a foliar deficiency, that that fungicide isn't really gonna benefit you much. And there are probably some other things to look into. Uh, and I think a lot of that goes back to just basic plant physiology and then um, overall balancing those nutrients within the plant itself. Right. So there, there's no fungicides that's really going to help us. And we've looked at even putting out some foliar applications of potash, trying to force some of that into the leaves that way and, and get a little extra into the plant. Uh, we've increased the rates that we're putting out and we really just can't find a way to get more into the plant to help out. So what can a grower do if they know they have a situation where that happens every year? Is there anything you found that can help reduce that situation or is it just something they got to live with? I, I hate to say it, but I really come back to the fact I think most growers that run across that are just basically going to have to live with that situation. Uh, and a lot of that you know, I've, I've even gone so far as to evaluate varieties for some of those diseases and how some of those things appear in the field. And the hard part with that is so many of these varieties are not around as long as we would like them to be to really gather some data. And the other thing there is, is that um, seed companies themselves choose those entries and variety testing programs. So we may only get a year or two to look at some of those. And as you know yourself, having done research in the past, it's multiple years of evaluations for some of those things on specific varieties to really get a good feel for how that responds to our environment and our general production practices and whether that will be beneficial for, for cotton farmers to focus on some of those things. 
Tom, we, we've talked a lot about these leaf diseases already. Is there any other diseases in cotton that are showing up this year or that, that you're on the lookout for? You know, so far it's it's been quiet to be a plant pathologist, and that's a that's a dubious thing to say this time of the year because usually I end up talking myself into way more work this time of the season. But the phone's been pretty quiet. Not a lot of people have been running across things in corn, soybeans, or cotton to this point. I do know that you know some of the other things that we could at least mention are things like the lower canopy diseases. So target spot of cotton. Target spot of cotton can also be associated with some nutritional issues and the one there being over nitrogen fertilization. So managing that those nitrogen inputs and making sure that you're not over fertilizing can actually help manage some of those things at just the basic field level so that you don't end up with a situation whereby you need to make say a fungicide application to slow target spot down. And then really with that in mind, the hard part is, and, and I know that you'll have a lot of field-related personnel listening to this, is that proper diagnosis goes a long way towards making sure that you can do something in a subsequent season or then making the right decision even in the season that you're in, this being 2022. And I know that myself being a plant pathologist, you having enough plant pathology under your belt yourself, a lot of times it can be difficult to properly diagnose some of these things. So it's important to make sure that we're looking at the right disease and we're looking at the right thing within the plant canopy and not assuming that that we're looking at, say, target spot in the upper plant canopy um, or one of these other things that is attributed to a, a potassium deficiency, because in some cases they can look very similar to one another. It's hard to tell the difference. Then you throw the fertility picture in there and are we looking at a, a disease symptom? Or are we looking at a fertility symptom? Or are we looking at a herbicide injury symptom? And it's really hard to tell that especially standing in the field. I mean, you got the sweat bouncing out of your eyes and, and rubbing your eyes. You can't really see what you're looking at. And my general rule of thumb, if, if I'm seeing something on a plant, I'm going to send that to a respectable lab, whether that be your lab or one of the commercial labs, and let them run the diagnostics on that and figure out what's going on. Uh, I think that's money well spent for the grower and helps them know exactly what's going on at that time of year. Oh, yeah. And that's you know, for those of us that eat, sleep, and breathe plant pathology, it's it's really important to have a good feel for what you're looking at. And make sure that you're looking at the right thing. So don't be shy about sending pictures to somebody. And usually what I tell people is take as many pictures as you want. I mean, that's why I have an unlimited phone plan to look at a lot of photos. And then the hard part is you mentioned, you know, the lots of sweat running in your eyes and everything else. Make sure that those are as in focus as possible. And then the greatest resolution. So I know that most cell phones will take something up to and including like a four megabyte picture. And that helps because then somebody can zoom into that actual photo and look at the symptoms to see what they need to see. And in a lot of cases, that can really head some things off at the pass and even reduce the need for sending some things to a diagnostic lab. Although in a lot of cases, um, that's the best thing to do because a high, high powered, high dollar microscope sometimes is about what it takes to really properly diagnose some of these things at least unless you have a really good feel for what you're looking at year over year and between fields. And in a lot of cases, that can still even stunt me. That's not something to be shy about saying as a plant pathologist that I think those of us that spend lots of time in the field know that you learn just about every year. And I still learn something new just about every week, if not every day in this job. Tom, so we, we talked a little bit about the possibility of having to send some samples in. If you would talk just a little bit about how you want them to handle those samples, if they 
need to send a sample into the lab so we don't destroy it in the process of mailing it in and it's still something viable when you get it. First thing to consider is you're better off sending a sample in with a dry paper towel in the back. Don't add a wet paper towel. And if you're taking a sample collection, you want the moisture in the leaf to be pretty well preserved. So Ziploc bags are fantastic for sending things in the mail or taking it to the lab. And usually what I tell people is y'all got a water cooler or a cooler in the back of your truck. You would handle leaf tissue samples like you'd handle something that you're going to eat later that day. Make sure it's kept cool. Don't keep it in the cab of the truck. Don't put it on the dashboard. And if you're shipping something, don't ship it with a wet paper towel in that bag. You will absolutely destroy that plant tissue because if it sits in a hot mail truck or sits in a mail room for two days, any of that moisture will get into that leaf and it'll start growing all sorts of things that'll just confound any plant disease diagnostician. The other thing is rapidly send that sample. So overnight everything and don't overnight something on a Thursday and definitely don't do that before a holiday weekend because more often than not, something shipped on a Thursday isn't going to get there until Tuesday. And that's really important. And I know, you know, soil samples can be handled a little bit differently. They'll give you those nice little soil sample bags, but don't put plant leaves in those because they tend to dry out too fast. And really, the faster you get it into a cool environment, so sticking it in a cooler with some ice, the better off you are. And that's, you know, we store things in the refrigerator in some cases for seven to 10 days, and it still stays pretty good. But we've taken it straight from the field, dropped it in a cooler, and then straight into a refrigerator. Right. And that's the best way to manage any of those things, because you want somebody to diagnose something with the best and most fresh plant material that they can possibly get. Okay, Tom, great information on that. You know, another thing you mentioned earlier was over-fertilization, especially with nitrogen. And, and we see that a little bit in cotton from time to time. And I think a lot of people do that because they know they can lose nitrogen, have the potential for losing that nitrogen. And used to, they would put a little extra out. It's so expensive now. I don't see, think we'll see that this year. But uh, you start growing all of that under canopy and vegetation in this cotton crop, and that's going to set us up for things like bowl rot little early this year to start seeing anything like that, but talk a little bit about the bowl rots and those diseases and what we can do to manage those. Boy, bowl rots are, that's a wildly difficult situation to discuss. I mean, that's a laundry list of just about every fungus in a cotton field that can jump onto a bowl and end up rotting that. And then you even have succession issues whereby something starts that rot and you'll have different organisms move in after that. And I think the thing we all forget is Cotton itself and cotton bowls have a tremendous amount of sugar in there. And what I like to tell anybody in a room that I talk to about plant pathology or plant diseases is you can grow just about every fungus that causes a disease on starch and sugar. So just straight potatoes and just almost table sugar mixed in a jar and run through an autoclave is what you basically grow any organisms in a laboratory on. So any of those bowls in the lower canopy, you can have organisms really impact those. The hard part about managing those, and I think there's always been the general thought that fungicides would really help in that situation, but you have to remember how in most cases, at least in Mississippi, we put a tremendous amount of fungicides out by airplane. So expecting any of those products to actually get within the canopy or to the lower canopy where you really would need some of those to be most beneficial is probably not going to happen just based on regular application technology and how we go about that. In a lot of cases, 
And something we talk about pretty regularly is that when you end up with some of that leaf shed in the lower canopy that may occur from something like target spot or something else, that's actually not a bad thing because you might increase airflow and reduce the likelihood of bull rot production. And any of those things whereby you're doing a better job of managing your actual fertility inputs can, in essence, reduce the potential likelihood of that occurring because then you start factoring in the use of PGRs, anything to really benefit that overall canopy architecture and keeping that plant stature short can help reduce the amount of moisture or humidity that you'll keep within that plant canopy itself. And that's really important because that's the thing you touched on earlier when you talk about the disease triangle, the the disease pyramid. Your environment in this part of the world is really related to how much humidity you have within the plant canopy itself. And you know as well as I do, you get down to South Mississippi and you have a lot more frequent rainfall. And some of those field architecture situations are a little bit smaller. So you really constrain or limit the amount of airflow that you have in general across a lot of those fields. And whenever you have that situation, that can be a a huge dumpster fire for plant disease. Something like bull rots definitely comes to mind down in that part of Mississippi. Well, Tom, we've talked a lot about cotton this morning, and that's what our focus was going to be on. But uh, what about any other crops this morning? Is there anything else you want to mention in soybeans or corn? You know, the one thing you and I talked about just briefly before we started recording was, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, the plant pathologist did a tremendous amount of work looking at the benefits of fertilizer and fertility and just general fertility practices and how that might reduce things from a standpoint of plant diseases. But the hard part is a lot of those plant disease issues we have, whether it be um, pod quality issues in soybeans or even general grain quality, a lot of those issues could be related to something as simple as a source sink relationship with potassium. Um, So managing fertility from a standpoint of making sure that the plant has everything that it needs to finish its course and produce a good crop is really important. And then the other thing I would mention is, and definitely the key to fertility and good plant growth is just general soil pH. It's so important to make sure that you're monitoring those soil characteristics over time because something as simple as soil pH can drive that entire picture and definitely change how things manifest themselves from a plant disease situation or even just general fertility and compound the whole entire situation when it comes to being you know, diagnostically sound and looking at the right thing within that field setting. Uh, you know, and heck, in the years I've been here, the number of telephone calls I've received in field situations that were related to pH were really low. But I think that's something that staying on top of and spending those dollars to make sure that a soil laboratory looks at fertility and make sure that you're putting inputs back into that field situation is really important, not just from overall agronomic crop growth, but even reducing the likelihood of something that could be misdiagnosed or even properly diagnosed as a plant disease issue in some of those field settings. Tom, I'm really glad you mentioned soil pH. That's something that we've done several podcasts on already this year and different sources of lime and how to get that pH right and maintain it for several years. But uh, pH is critical, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't pay you extra to mention pH this morning, so thanks a lot on that one. Is there anything else we need to talk about before we wrap things up this morning? I think your listeners should be mindful that in each of their respective states, there probably is a plant pathologist that definitely would be willing to look at pictures or walk fields with them. And I know I do that with a lot of retailers. 
that's something that, you know, I feel is pretty important because a lot of these kids that go to school and get hired in some of these jobs may not have a background in looking at some of those things. Right. So I know that leaning on people that have that expertise is important. And I think that's something that all of my counterparts are really willing to help in because it's really important and definitely to keep some of those things in the back of your mind that what you're looking at either could or could not be a plant disease issue. And I know that, you know, like I said, I get lots of pictures on my phone throughout the season. And that's something I devote a lot of time to looking at things and talking to retailers, you know, off and on throughout the year about diagnostics and looking at specific plant diseases. And it's not just necessarily about making a fungicide application. In a lot of cases, we look at a lot of things in field situations that are not diseases uh, and could be related to something as simple as just, you know, off-target herbicide application. Tom, we really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. You've shared a lot of information that directly relates to soil fertility and plant pathology, disease management things that these farmers are going to really be able to take home and apply on their fields. I want to also remind everyone, if you have not tuned into the Crop Doctors podcast, uh, that's a weekly production by the Mississippi State Extension Service. Uh, Tom is the co-host of that. And they present a lot of timely information on that podcast that I think everyone would benefit from listening to. Listeners, I want to remind you to join in again next week as we continue our series that we've started on the essential plant nutrients. We'll be starting this back again next week talking about zinc. Until next time, this has been Mike Howell with The Dirt.